So welcome to the Lebo Lounge. Lebo Lounge. The Lebo Lounge. It's not racist. <laughs> what is a Lebo? Lebanese. Oh, right. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. see? Not racist. <laughs> no. Not racist. <laughs> so today's guest is Mr. Frank Malloy. Hello. And Frank has just come home from a journey on the ocean. Mm-hmm. Tell me about the journey, Frank. Tell me about when you got back exactly and how long you're away for. I got back seven days ago from being at sea in the East China Sea for 10 months. 10 months? 300 days. Um, yeah, I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say you are. Yeah. So tell me about when you first left. So where did you go first? What happened? February 22nd. I flew to Shanghai. I don't really remember how that happened. The flights all get blurry, but it yeah. was, there was a flight that went to Shanghai and I ended up there. Stayed in possibly the nicest hotel the company has ever given me. It nice. was the Double Tree by Hilton and I was on the 35th floor in like a glass, a room where like one entire side of the room is glass. Wow. Like okay. so like giant bathroom looking out, giant bedroom, everything like facing out over the city. Like and you're on the outskirts of Shanghai, but still you have all the skyscrapers and everything. Mm-hmm. And uh yeah, that's actually not bad to settle into. Now, as I said, like what you think is a five star hotel in China is really a three hours three star hotel over here. Yeah. But it was okay. It was clean. It was you were comfortable. Yeah. You had your own bathroom. Yeah, that's it. And uh then at like seven o'clock in the morning. Yeah, I have to get up, get downstairs, get some breakfast. It wasn't really breakfast, but it was some. It looked like food, and uh, they put you on a bus, and then the bus takes you all the way to the port, and then you spend hours waiting for Chinese immigration to clear you, and then you get on the ship. And when you're on the ship, you are officially an employee of Royal Caribbean again. You are their property. You hand over your passport. They give you a card with your face on it, mm-hmm. and that is your life for the next ten months while you work for them. And then you head out to sea. That's it. And we cruise with guests from Shanghai to Japan every four or five days from Baoshan, Shanghai, on the quantum of the seas. Okay. Now tell me about the living quarters, because they're probably a little bit less than five-star hotel. For the crew, I guess. Yeah, for the crew, sorry. Oh, yeah. Well, for your average crew member, their living quarters are a single share cabin. Well, for the real unlucky ones, it's a, a shared cabin, a double so you got bunk beds in the corner of a very, very small room, which has got a cupboard, usually just one, <laughs> with some okay. shelves and a tiny table and a bathroom in the corner of the room. Like, a, you know, like, let's say 30% of the room is cordoned off and, is, you know, it has a door and it's got fake tile floor, so it's not bad. It's got a toilet and a sink and a shower in it. Mm-hmm. Um, but you are about two meters away from your friend who's in bed while you're doing your thing in the bathroom. Um, so it takes some getting used to, but then you step up to an, you know, it just depends on your rank really and on your cabin and on your position on the ship that you get a single share, which is two people, two bedrooms side by side with a bathroom separating them. And now when I say bedroom, I mean 1.5 meters wide by 2.5 meters long wow. by two meters high. And you're not a you're not a very short person. No, I'm I'm six three, so you can touch all four walls at the same time. Wow. And I've lived in those cabins many times. But when I was on Quantum, 
I thankfully was a supervisor, so then you step up to a supervisor cabin. So imagine what those two people had in their bunk bed cabin, but now just put a medium size, like a baby queen bed in there, mm-hmm. and that's the supervisor cabin. So you have the bathroom to yourself, the cabin to yourself, just one big bed to yourself, so everything is much nicer. And I have two Genelec monitors as my playback for my 40-inch TV. Nice. On my laptop and games and all that stuff as well. So it depends on your rank on the ship, where you sit and what kind of cabin you get. Okay, and that leads us nicely to what were you doing on the ship? So what is your role? What is your status, I guess? Where where do you fit in? I was the head sound and light technician, okay. which means you're the... I was a sound technician for the Royal Theatre, so mm-hmm. the main theatre sound tech, but that position of supervisor is available to any one of the technicians. Whoever's the most senior, the more experienced, or the more willing to take all of the shit is the person who gets the supervisor position. And when it was available at the beginning of my contract in the first month, there were three people who applied for it. And when I walked in, I was the only person who brought an envelope full of my like my CV, my previous appraisals, my previous like uh, uh, paperwork from previous managers and stuff. So they were like, you're the only person who took it seriously and brought paperwork, so you have it. It's yours. So th- th- this wasn't obviously the first time you'd been doing this type of role? No, I've done it before. Yeah, so so yeah. maybe just a little bit of background about where you were before that. Not in too much detail, but... Oh, um, what is it? It's 2018, so something along the lines of 14 years as a sound tech, you know. Um, worked a lot in Ireland, then traveled, did a lot of other countries, festivals, French festivals. And this is, Quantum was my fourth ship. Wow. So... By the time I got there, yeah, it was like I was qualified to just take in a supervisor and deal with all of the extra schmoo that you have to deal with every single day. Cool. So, what is a what's your start time, end time? What are your duties during the day for that particular line of work? Like, <clears throat> primarily, the production shows are our in-house big shows. You know, mm-hmm. so you have headliner shows who are external entertainers that come in and production shows are the ones that are produced by the ship. You know, so the the ones that were made by Miami Office and they're the big deal shows. Like some of the ships have Broadway musicals. Like next month, I'm going to do Cats on Oasis. Mm-hmm. Um, but so on our ship, we had Sequins and Feathers, which is a Vegas style Beyonce music, hip hop, modern R and B show. And then the other one is Sonic Odyssey, which is developed by William Close, who is an avant garde inventor of instruments. And um, so that show, you've got six live singers, you've got 22 dancers, you've got a maestro who plays the earth harp and the drum wall and the drumbrellas and the aquitar, which are all these very unique, and the drum jacket and the violin dress, all these super unique instruments made for this show. And yeah. so you start in the day at around 10 a.m. for a rehearsal for that show. Okay. And then the rest of the day, as a supervisor anyway, is all paperwork and emails and checking up on maintenance and checking all the other venues because we have many other venues and many other events and mm-hmm. many other technicians. So you just have to chase up after everybody to make sure everything's being fixed and repaired and maintained. And then if you're you're usually at sea on a day like that, so you're just working all day long until showtime. Before showtime, you'll have a fly rehearsal for all of our flying by foy because we fly people. And mm-hmm. when you fly people, you have to do a fly rehearsal every single day. If someone is going to fly, there must be a rehearsal because it's it's such a risky thing to do that you have to, especially at sea where everything's moving. Yeah, um, we could have you know four or five performers in the air at any given time flying on steel cables. So and it's all you know very carefully automated, and we have special rigging specialists who are dedicated to just that. Um, but you do a fly rehearsal with time code and with music and with tracks and with everything. Mm-hmm. 
then after they're done, you do a sound check with all the singers and the musicians. And then you prepare the house to open, just put on background music, whatever it is, and then get out of the theater. And you've got one hour where they will fill the theater with all the guests. Then, obviously, just before showtime, you do a full sound check again. You do a full mic line test, um, a time code test. And then the show begins. And when you engage the show, you fire time code, lights, automation, stage and production manager, sound, all tape, time code, automation begins, and the show starts. Wow. And that's two shows then. And then you got to pack down the show. And so usually if you start at 10 a.m., you're going to finish around midnight and then do it again the next day. A typical kind of sound yeah. sound job hours. Yeah, except you don't lift as many speakers. Yeah. But you must have a bit of a crew behind you. Mm-hmm. You've got to mm-hmm. you've got to have guys doing monitor kind of sorting oh, out yeah, the monitors on stage and runners. Um, and... We have people who we have the stage staff who move all the equipment on stage. We have the stage okay. and production manager who's in charge of them. We have the rigging specialists who do all of the flying and the movement of the walls and the moving scenery and the curtains. Mm-hmm. And then, as a sound tech, literally you're in charge of the microphones and the speakers, you know, and the playback and the instruments and the interfaces and the cabling and all that. But if it comes to lights, you have light technicians, you know, and I, as the head sound and light supervisor. My job is to make sure that if a light breaks, I have a technician to fix it. I'm not going to fix that light because I don't do lights. Yeah. Sound is my thing, but I need to be 100% aware of the problem and 100% aware of my technician repairing it and making sure it's done correctly and that they're not building a fire hazard because light technicians have a tendency to... Okay, inexperienced light technicians have a tendency to build a fire hazard. Don't forget that proviso, Frank. Don't forget that proviso. <laughs> yeah. Because if you get a very expensive moving light and you shove some wires into it and you shove some gaffer tape into it you've just mm-hmm. made a fireplace yeah <laughs> a very expensive fireplace kindling yeah kindling so yeah you babysit that stuff all day every day and uh, then at night time you have all the bars and the restaurants and the nightclub and they're calling you about their problems mm-hmm. but then at 7 o'clock in the morning you have all the restaurants for breakfast who are calling you about their problems that they don't like the background music or that the themed lighting in the dining room has gone wrong or that the colored lights, which are supposed to be lighting up the shopping special event on the Esplanade shopping street, is the wrong color today or it hasn't turned on on time. And so, yeah, your phone never stops ringing. Wow. Never. It's a small city. So, I'm, yeah, but you being in the supervisory role is pretty full on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You're the guy that everyone asks. Because, well, basically, like, you know, there's, there's a thousand other people on the ship, but. Because my job title says head sound and light technician, when people read the phone book, they yeah. go through the phone book and they're like, oh, sound and light. This is a sound problem. This is a light problem. They're like, no, you need an electrician for this. Yeah. Like, this is a broken light bulb. Please don't call me about broken light bulbs. Yeah. But they see, oh, light technician. So they call you for it. So you get called thousands of times for things that aren't your problem, and you get called tens of times for things which are your problem. You know. So when do you get do you get time off only when the guests get time off? Is that pretty much how that works? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So once you've landed in whatever nearest port or the next port is, you yeah. guys are given a bit of a stay of leave. If you don't have maintenance, and if you don't okay. have to repair something, or if you don't have your scheduled work orders, mm-hmm. where there's these company-provided uh, work orders every month, three months, six months, and a year, uh, scheduled you know, a mandatory maintenance that must be done. Hmm. to all of your equipment. If you don't have those, and if you don't have something which is very broken, which happens sometimes, um, then yeah, you've got free time outside. So you've got from maybe 10 o'clock in the morning till maybe between 4 and 6 p.m. in the afternoon to just go outside and enjoy the port, wherever you are on Earth. So for us, it was Japan this time, and it was amazing. I can honestly only imagine. 
it's incredible. <laughs> it's one of the only places in the world that I really want to see is mm-hmm. Japan. That I actually have the itch to go and see is Japan. Oh, it's a breathtaking country. So you started in Shanghai, was it? Yeah, Shanghai, Baoshan is the name of the port. Yeah, and we're on the Yangtze River, and you're sailing down the Yangtze to get out to the East China Sea. Okay, and it is the busiest shipping port on earth. Sorry, just in general, or with, general, with just cruise ship type stuff? No, no, no. Like, there's a couple of cruise ships there, two or three, mm-hmm. but in terms of just shipping cargo, like busiest port on earth. Oh, is that, is that that's probably the main yeah. shipping port coming out for export? Yeah, it's incredible. Wow. The four biggest ships on Earth were launched there this year. Each one broke the record. They're now up to 20,000 BTU, which is 20,000 shipping containers. 20,000 shipping containers? On one ship. So the biggest cruise ship on Earth is Oasis, which I'm going to next. Mm-hmm. She could be cargo on that ship. She could honestly be cargo. That's astonishing. Yeah, so passenger vessels have nothing on cargo vessels. Cargo is the king. Yeah. Because, well, that's where all the iPods come from. (laughs) (laughs) And the televisions. And the televisions. And the cars. Okay, so... Basically, you went through. You went. You started from Shanghai. You were obviously comfortable enough in the work. Mm-hmm. What was the most challenging thing? Did you ever have a show that you went, "Okay, this is really these problems are not going to make me get through this"? Um, Did anything ever get to critical level? In terms of the performer, yes. In terms of the performer, working with the person. Okay. Yeah. Um, people who acted like they were fresh off Broadway, but really they weren't, they wouldn't get a gig in Temple Bar. Like, wow. They were just way too big for their boots. Like, put it this way, there's a, there's a huge obsession in China with Westerners. Yeah. Um, so if you go to a shopping mall in China, all of the advertisements, all of the fashion, all of the posters of people wearing the clothes, the shoes, the sunglasses, the hats, are all Westerners. Yeah. All of them. So, to be a Westerner in China and to be on television is not a strange thing. It is incredibly common. If you just live and work in like a menial office job in China as a Westerner, you will end up on television for a day. One day. That's it. That'll be the end of it. You won't be rich. You know, you'll just do one day on TV because they need a Westerner. I have, I have actually heard about this kind of weird obsession with um, Western beauty standards. Yeah, that's it as well. In, in which they case, all want to bleach Chinese their skin to be whiter. To... They all want to brighten their eyes to be wider. Yeah. You know, they have this weird obsession. Not not all of them, but there is a small no. fashionista obsessive niche that are just like focused on becoming more westernized. Yeah, and they want to be more western than the West themselves. So they use social media harder. They mm. promote themselves more ferociously. You know, there there's a certain demographic which were just. I don't know, social media got released more recently there, and it, VPNs made it more available for to everybody, so now yeah. everybody is going nuts about it at the same time. Is everybody using a VPN now to get around the, the new kind of ban on certain sites? Yeah, because well, the China internet, man, there's nothing available. Yeah. But what I was saying about the Westerners is, you get some people who are very big for their boots, because, oh, oh well, I was on TV in China. It was like, mate, that, that, that guy's dog was on TV in China. Like Everyone has been on TV in China, you know? Just because... 
it, it might just be a talent show where they just want a bunch of Westerners to dance around on a stage and sing a Chinese song because to see a Westerner singing a traditional Teresa Tang song in Shanghai yeah. blows people's minds. Really? But it will be as funny, like, like for their eyes, it's just like slapstick t- uh, comedy TV. So it would be like for us if you had a Chinese tourist come over singing the fields of Athen Rai. Because yeah. their pronunciation is going to be incorrect. Their yeah. accent is going to be very strong. And it's going to be, you know, like slapstick comedy TV. Same thing as a Westerner with their broken Chinese going over there trying to sing a, tra- a traditional, very popular pop song. They're going to get it wrong. And it's going to be hilarious. Yeah. So that's why, you know, like... Almost everyone I know who's lived in mainland China has been on TV, been on the radio, been in magazines, been in interviews, been in all this. Happens all the time because it's just such a common thing. It's it's an everyday pedestrian thing. But you get someone who's done that a couple of times and then they come on the ship and they act like they are Hugh Jackman. Like, Is is there a small element of the um, Irish famous? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Where, where you get people who do very well in Ireland and then think, I'm famous. Yeah. And I go, you're famous in a very, very small part of the world. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But like being famous in China, like, well, not famous in China. If they went on television, they probably went on CCTV is uh, China Central Television. Mm -hmm. And um, they have many, many, many channels. Let's say they've got like eight or 10 channels. So CCTV, one, two, three, four, five, seven, eight. So if you went on one of them, you were probably just broadcast in Shanghai. Yeah, and probably a small number of people watched you, so you're you're not a big deal. You were on, it's like being on, you know, TV three over here. It was like, yeah. oh, I did that one afternoon show on TV three. I only found this out recently. TV three is no longer TV three. Yeah. Have you watched the television since you have come back? Uh-uh. Yeah, I, I literally only I found this out only yesterday. Okay, it's now called Virgin Media TV. Really? Yeah. Wow. And it's, it's very, very, very strange. So you go onto your Skybox or whatever, and you type in whatever the station number is. I think it's like 103. And what comes up is Virgin Media TV 1. Virgin Media TV 2. <laughs> and they have all the logos, and you have all of the exact same people who were on TV 3 having to change the thing they say at the end of every segment in the news. Right. <laughs> or, you know, or change the way they, they say the ads. That's very Bizarre. Apparently, yeah. Uh, apparently well, it was, Richard yeah. Branson is taking over the world. Well, I didn't even realize this. TV3 was on Virgin already. It was already owned by Virgin. Oh. So it wasn't that much of a crazy move. But that happened back in August. And that shows, oh, you, right. that, that shows you how little television I get to see. Because I who just don't. Who watches TV? I, I don't. I don't get it. I, I don't know anyone who watches television. Like yeah. the, the one weird thing. Well, number one, like uh, side note, Richard Branson is launching a cruise line, Virgin Voyages. Yeah. Send in your CV now. I already have. Okay. Um, 18 plus, no children. And there's going to be a tattoo parlor on board. Like, everything about this cruise line makes me interested. I'm in. I'm sold. Um, so. There's going to be a tattoo parlor on board. Yeah. Is there any specific reason he thought that would be a good addition, or is it I, just? I a think he's trying gimmick? to be like down with the homies. It's a gimmick. I think he's just trying to be cool. Like well, it, it's, it's going to be a shit idea because everyone's going to go in. They're going to see the same anchor tattoo, and they're all going to get it. Oh. And it's going to be like getting the Virgin Media logo tattooed on your arse. Oh <laughs> no! It's going to be the same. Oh, that's not good. <laughs> He also launched um, another, well, he was already kind of aiming for the SpaceX type thing. Oh, where he's, yeah. Where he's competing with uh, yeah, SpaceX. Yeah, he's, he's in the space race wars. Yeah, where it's, they're, they're privatizing space travel, basically, oh, yeah. which yeah, is a, yeah. an interesting concept. 
So millionaires can now fly up to space and come oh, yeah. back. Great. Well, if we're lucky, they might burn up. <laughs> Sensing a distaste for rich people. No, no, no. Not just because the rich people are the hardest people to deal with. Um, I don't know. It's like uh, the more you deal with obscenely rich people, the more they act like poor assholes. Because if they're incredibly rich, the reason they became rich is because they looked after their money. Yeah. But the way they look after their money is by being a tight bastard and not giving anyone a penny and fighting and arguing and bickering over every small expense. And they just make existing around them horrible. You know, it's like if you're that worried about everyone taking your money off you, just stay at home. No one came here to steal your money off you, but now you're making us all feel like criminals. <laughs> But yeah, actually, yeah. Tell me about that. So, now you you didn't really have a customer based job. Oh. I mean, you never really had to deal with the public too much. No. Um, obviously, you might like you would have seen them around. You would have been going for a drink at the bar or whatever. You would have been around them. Was there a sense of because when I, I was on, I was only ever on a cruise once, mm-hmm. and the one thing that I did notice was it wasn't the super rich people that I was kind of annoyed by. It was the people who weren't rich who were being treated as if they were rich and then acted accordingly. Oh, no, yeah, those people are also terrible. Oh, there's many tiers of people who are terrible on cruise ships. <laughs> okay. um, you have the people who paid like $1,000 for a cruise and they now think that they are the Queen of France. Yes. And that they are deserving of all of the seven-star service. It was like, Miss... You didn't pay for three-star service. So I don't know where you're mm. getting this idea about your seven-star service. Get at the back of the queue. The buffet will be open in 10 minutes. Yes. Like, calm down. Um, yeah, no, the super rich, you don't really experience that much. You don't see them that much. Sometimes they can be a pain in the arse, you know, but in all honesty, I met more of them in China because there is more of them in China. Yeah. Um, and they were more aggressive just because they were, well, okay, let's put it this way. They were putting gigantic amounts of money in the casino they were usually drinking they were having a great time I can't you know generalize the entire demographic just because they were drunk and having a good time yeah of course but they did you know make life difficult sometimes yeah. but yeah no the the middle class people who think that they're millionaires or think that they can fake being millionaires yes like all of the cruise ship crew we can see through that straight away we know when you've got money we know when you don't have money other, other members who are on there like of the public can tell yeah. these people are just and the other thing is, the super rich don't go on cruises. They no. have their own yachts. Very, very much. Why would you go on a cruise with all of these public when you can just go on Why your Why would you own? share anything with the public? Yeah, you've got your own ship. And we meet those as well, because like especially when you're sailing in the Mediterranean, you see these super yachts pulling up beside the cruise ship, and like all mahogany. with like, And I've seen this. I've personally seen this. An all mahogany schooner, Mm-hmm. She wasn't using her masts because she was using diesel power, obviously. Yeah. Um, but all the decks were like dark, dark, dark varnished mahogany. And then um, the jet ski varnished mahogany. The two speedboats varnished mahogany. The helicopter pad varnished mahogany. The helicopter, like black James Bond steel. Yeah. Like real yeah. super villain looking. Mm-hmm. And uh, then all of the crew on board the yacht were wearing those incredible, incredibly typical Greek sailor short white shorts and the shirts with the blue stripe. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really? Yeah, 100%. The blue and white striped shirts? Yeah, 100%. Ah. 
And berets. What? Yeah, 100%. But the thing is, like, this was obviously some Russian oligarch who had, like, unlimited money. Billions and billions. Yeah. And I was talking to one of the guys off that boat later. It was in Nassau. But no, this wasn't in Bahamas. No, I met another one of those in Bahamas. This one was in Catacolon in Greece. And I met him later in a bar. And because every so often we will hang out with those super yacht crew members because quite often they're there for four, five, six days in a row. We're yeah. just there for one day. Um, but this guy was saying that this oligarch, he got them to sail to Greece and he was taking his family and his, I think it was like his son was going to school in England and they were doing a school project on the Greek gods or the, you know, uh, something about like, I don't know, Greek heritage, whatever. He was just like, it was a young kid, you know, so like I say, a primary school project. So like very basic stuff. Mm-hmm. Just, this is a Greek god, this is a Roman god, thank you. Um so he just decided to sail to Greeks as a family vacation, as their summer holiday anyway. And then like take the kid to the... The reason you go to Catacolon is because it's the original site of the Olympics. It's the first place, you know. Ah, okay. And uh, the lads were saying, like, he's going to leave in four days. So we're probably going to get back as far as maybe Piraeus, which is Athens. Mm-hmm. Piraeus is the port outside Athens. They're going to go as far as there, and they're going to fly home from there. And then... Um, he tells the lads on the ship, I need you to be in Sydney, Australia next January. Yeah. And they just have to get from Greece to Australia in the next six months. I've heard about these guys. But and they're just like, yeah. call all their mates, all their families, everyone, get on the board, we're going for a party. And yeah. they sail to Australia. Now, I've heard about these guys because there is no other way to get the boat from one side of the world to the other. Yeah. I mean, how do you do it? That's so it. The, the cheapest, easiest way is to pay a captain to just take over your boat and go, yeah, uh, meet me wherever the hell I'm going to be because I want my boat there. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Staggering job. It's like any millionaire who has a helicopter. Yeah. There's a fellow who lives near me down in Tipperary and uh, he has four helicopters in his shed because he is a licensed helicopter pilot. And so he flies for some horsey people and for some, uh, some Middle Eastern people who obviously have a lot of horses and a lot of business over here. Yeah. And they have helicopters over here, which they own. But they obviously don't fly because why would you get your own pilot's license when you can just buy a pilot? So he is their pilot when they're here. So he gets a phone call, starts up the engine, flies to the Dublin airport to pick them up, and then flies them around the country. You know, and he is their chauffeur in the air. And then when they're done, he just takes it back, puts it back in the shed, services it, maintains it, everything's paid for. You know, so like. Yeah, same thing with your yacht and with your helicopter and with all those. Well, these jobs exist and they're phenomenal things to get. I don't even know how you end up, I mean... Yeah, that's it. It's an interesting side of life. Back to the boat. Because <laughs> yes, yes, <sorry. laughs> we, we, we kind of took a detour. Um, so we were talking before about tattoos that sailors get because you, you've, you've gotten one or two already oh, yeah. that represent your, your on-the-sea voyages. Yeah, yeah. And you explained to me how each different type of tattoo that I traditionally associate with kind of Navy and sailing and that kind of thing, yeah. they all represent things. They all yeah, represent exactly. yeah, different. Yeah. They, they all have very specific things they represent. Um, I'm sure you've heard of Sailor Jerry Rum. Yes. Yeah. Sailor Jerry was a real person. 
and uh, Sailor Jerry was a, I want to say, around the end of World War II going into the Pacific War. Um, He was in the Pacific, and he was tattooing people. And a lot of his designs, like the Jaguar and the Swallows and stuff, became really popular. Um, Okay. I am going to look up Sailor Jerry very quickly. Oh, yeah, sorry. Sailor Jerry was a prominent American tattoo artist in Hawaii who was well known for his sailor tattoos. Okay. So he was uh, based in Honolulu and a lot of his tattoos became like synonymous with the Sailor Jerry, uh, with the the sailor style. So with, with sailors getting these tattoos. Now they existed before him, but he made the kind of the graphic style of them more okay. ubiquitous, more just like when you saw it, you knew that is a sailor's tattoo. What kind of timeline was this? You were saying this was back after the World War Two, was it? After World War Two, he died in 1973. Okay, so like yeah. late 40s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, mid mid to late 40s. That's it. And so he kind of stylized a lot of them, but there was a lot of um, meaning behind all the tattoos before that. Um, there was the one I'm getting right now, as soon as possible, is the anchor. And mm. the anchor tattoo is to symbolize crossing the Atlantic, sailing the Atlantic. Well, because anyone can fly it. <laughs> but sailing the Atlantic is a far more intimidating and kind of uh, grueling task. Yeah. Um, then you have the dragon, and the dragon is for sailing in Asia, in the like the East China Sea or in the Pacific or in the Asian Ocean or the Indian Ocean. And is this just for sailing through kind of once, like just one? It's it's like ticking off something off a list. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or for service in that area. You know, yeah. for like, a, you know, obviously a lot of this stuff was all military. It all has military roots. Yeah. You know, um, or Navy, sorry. Well, yeah, I, yeah I, always assume, I always associate that stuff with Navy. Yeah, yeah. Literally, yeah. yeah. And so the star, like as you said earlier, looked like a, like a Russian or a communist star. It, it look, it's a communist um, star. The it nautical is star star. star is so a sailor always finds their way home. Yeah. You know, and the, so the sailor, the star and the compass are always uh, associated with find your way home. Uh-huh. So for a sailor, it was always, you know, you can get that at any point in your contract or in your time at sea. You know, once you kind of officially are a sailor, which is you've done some landmark stuff and you've done a couple of thousand nautical miles and you've lived at sea for long enough, then you can really start to get sailor tattoos. You know, yeah. going on a cruise doesn't really count unless you've gone on like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cruises in a row, then you can count yourself a sailor, you know? Yeah. Um, well, it, it, it's it's more of a lifestyle at that point than a yeah, job. Yeah, it's, it's literally a way of life. You know, ship life is like the catchphrase. That, well, no, they're just coining the term. The term ship life is you'll see any sailor, any crew member at all, and you look at them and you say ship life, and they know exactly what you mean. You know, because ship life is ship life, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, the anchor is that a sailor has crossed the Atlantic or was a merchant mariner. So my dad should get a merchant. He, my dad man. should get an anchor. Exactly. I could never convince him to get a tattoo, but there we go. Now I know what to get him for Christmas. <laughs> explain, explain, explain there why uh, why your dad should. Uh, he was in the Merchant Navy in the sixties and seventies as yeah. a radio operator. I remember him telling me stories, and they were just yeah, so oh, so fascinating. Oil tankers for BP British Petroleum in the sixties yeah. and seventies. He was a Morse code radio officer. So back in the day, like we're talking before they had long wave voice radio, they had Morse, Morse code. Morse code. Yeah. And so he would sit in the office for a couple of hours a day, just listening to the beep, 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 you know, like incredible stuff. So he actually could qualify for that because he's been to more ports than I have. He's been more around the world than I was. 
So oh, you, you travelled a hell of a lot from what I remember, yeah. You know, I'm still catching up. I'm on like 50 countries now, you know, but I still haven't sailed. Well, I have been in the Indian Ocean on a small timber boat in Thailand with a suspicious guy with a long hair and a beard. But I also had long hair and a beard, so we kind of suited each other. Sailing yeah. like 80 miles out into the Indian Ocean to a small island, so I've done that. Well, I stayed on that island for two and a half weeks as well. You said... Hang, hang on. <laughs> so I, I okay, a yeah, few oceans. You, I you'll to have to give up, me a little bit of that background. Adds the Indian Ocean. I've been the Pacific Ocean, so there's a few more oceans I have to add in. But soon I will be going back to the Indian Ocean. Yeah, give me just a little bit of context about you and a hairy man in a boat going to some very random island. Yeah, I was in Thailand, in the Indian Ocean, and like, I was in uh, Krabi or Trang. I don't know the two cities which are on the west coast are pretty close to each other. Cities mm-hmm. is a strong word. It was a town. Um, and I was in the shitty backpackers hostel and I was using the internet, Googling around about where to go next. And there was an Irish girl who I met there. And she was drunk, I was drunk, everyone was drunk. And I was asking her about what is Kofifi like. And Kofifi is the famous island in Thailand where the movie The Beach with Leonardo DiCaprio was filmed. Yeah, yeah. And Now an absolute tourist was- trap. Destroyed with yeah. tourists, and when I asked her how was Kofifi, she just burst into tears—a combination of how bad it was and how drunk she was. <sighs> but like, she just burst into tears. She said it was the most depressing thing I've ever seen in my life. She said it was just like Temple Bar at Christmas. Wow! It was just trashed with Liverpool jerseys, broken glass, people vomiting, chips and burgers—just disgusting. And so I said, "Well, okay, thank you very much. Fuck that. Not going there." So I then went on Google Maps, the satellite view, and I zoomed in on Fifi Island and then started to scroll out and started dragging along the coastline. And I saw this little black dot. I was like, that's interesting. So I went to map mode and it doesn't show up in the map. I was like, well, shit. So this was 2011. So Google Maps was only kind of improving. Yeah. And uh, so I went back to satellite view and I right clicked on the thing and I got its coordinates. And then I typed its latitude and longitude coordinates, or copy and paste its latitude and longitude coordinates into Google, and a website came up. And it was a for, website. Came a up website came up because for something that doesn't show up on Google Maps. Yeah, yeah. Because the thing is, the island is a destination, but on their website they contain the latitude and longitude. So Google obviously reads every website. It read the website and it read the lat long and it found it. And so then there was a phone number, and I was in Thailand, so I went to reception, got the phone, and I made a phone call, and there was this guy. There was an English guy, Lawrence, who I still have on Facebook, but the other guy was this crazy Thai man who loved Metallica and Pantera, and he had Dimebag Daryl's signature flying V with the lightning strikes over it nice. on the beach with his tiny 25-watt Marshall lamp. He was just... Sorry, he had this with him? On the beach, on the island. Okay. So I met him, and he was like, there is a ferry that goes to this island called Koliaoliang, I shouldn't have given away the name. Um, and uh, on this island, they hold 20 people, 20 guests. That's it. That's the whole thing. Yeah. And uh, so there's five people that work there, live there, and then there's 20 guests. So that's it. 25 people on an island that is 80 miles out into the Indian Ocean. So this is like Ackle Island in Thai India. Thai, yeah. But it's, okay. uh, well, it's in Thailand, but in the Indian Ocean. And um, so when you get there, it is a giant limestone block standing out of the ocean. And it has a tiny little archipelago carved out by the waves and there's a little teeny beach in there and on that beach there is two bamboo structures one is a building for cooking and for sitting and for hiding from the tornado please tell me the other is a bar 
And the other one's a bar. Yes. It's a little bamboo bar with little bits, of drift little bits of driftwood. And the bar itself is spirit bottles and then a giant cooler, like the, t- the size of a chest freezer, but just an ice box, like a regular plastic ice box, but huge. And every three days, a boat would pass by with ice and they would dump the ice into this thing with all the beer cans in it, and that was it. Right. And the island worked on an honesty system. So when you went to the bar at the daytime when there was no one there, you just picked a can of beer out of the cooler and then went over to the piece of paper and went Frank one beer. And came back an hour later with Frank two beer. And what happens after Frank has had Frank twelve beer? Well, and Frank can't like, spell you, Frank anymore. <laughs> no, no, thank you. Just your name is there, so you just have to tick. Oh, okay. You just have to tick the okay. box. And uh, yeah, my my bar tab ended up being about the same price as my stay, <laughs> <laughs> considering it was a dollar a beer um, less. But that was it was incredible. It really was incredible. Like because every single night they would serve fresh fish that they had caught from the ocean, literally at your feet, or crab or shrimp or whatever it was, and with amazing Thai rice and Thai spices and Thai everything. It's like ah, incredible stuff. But yeah, go get lost on an island in Thailand someday. What other tattoos were there? The cross cannons in military naval service, I'll never have that. Uh, hold fast are for the mooring guys, so I'll never have that as well. That's yeah. for guys who are mooring ropes. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't drop the ropes. You know, uh, The shellback turtle is earned when initiated into King Neptune's court by crossing the equator. Sorry, initiated into King Neptune's court. Court. Yeah. So when you cross the equator on any ship, you have to have an equator crossing ceremony. And a crossing ceremony is on every single ship. My dad did it in the sixties. I did it in twenty fourteen. Your dad had to do this. Oh yeah, yeah. Everyone does it. If you cross the equator on a ship, you do this. Like it's done. It is explain. When you cross the equator, you do a crossing ceremony, and a crossing ceremony is where you get a stupid wig and put it on someone, and they're Neptune. Ideally, they have a trident. If you don't have a trident, make do with a fork. Fork, yeah. Um, and then they have to get some really weird foods, like usually like raw fish in a bowl or or an octopus or some rice or some. Uh, usually, the rice is representing something else. It depends on how soft people are or how you know willing they are to eat disgusting stuff. Um, you could get fish eggs, like not the good kind. Oh. <laughs> but uh, what's some other foods? Um, raw eggs and stuff. It's basically just like you know, like a, like a, a puke challenge. Essentially, it's like the world's oldest puke challenge. And King Neptune is demanding that in order to cross, you have to like the people do it differently. Some people, of course, on like merchant ships, will do it with alcohol alone, just alcohol. Yeah. Other people, like on cruise ships, will do it with just food. With merchant vessels and naval vessels, quite often it was done with egg and flour and you know water and stuff that was disposable and not going to get the crew wrecked. So yeah. But you have to make a big ceremony, a big song and dance, and a big uh, like when when we did it on the ship. I stayed up all night with the light technician designing sound and light for it. So we had lightning storms with um, 
with thunder sound effects and Ride of the Valkyries playing through the thunder and lightning all sorts of stuff and then the captain the staff captain the hotel director chief engineer chief electronics engineer all came down dressed as Neptune and his court and they were like casting their scepters over people you know initiating them on the crossing it's a really naff stupid thing but it's what's been done forever it's so childish, but I love it because it's so childish. Yeah, but I, it, it, I, it's, it's ancient as well. Like, if, it, if it was taken seriously, I wouldn't like it at all. Mm-hmm, I, I think mm-hmm, it was mm-hmm. a very stupid thing. But the fact that it is reduced to what it is. Yeah, yeah, it's a bunch of adults playing dress up. You know? yeah. But um, but once you've crossed the equator, it is quite a ceremony just to like, even if it's stupid or not stupid, it's like when you cross the equator, you do feel like we're really sailing now. Like we are officially in the middle of F off nowhere. Yeah, because there's there's nothing. You're four days in every direction from humanity. Yeah, you know? literally. Yeah. Um. So then you can get a shellback turtle, which is just a very big what you would consider a tropical turtle. The swallow is tattooed for every five thousand nautical miles, which means I should get mine for every ten thousand. I can get two. Right. No, I can still get them for twenty thousand. Why do you say every ten thousand? No, I was, I was, yeah, I was doing bad math. I've probably done something around forty thousand nautical miles now. So, okay, I could get each swallow could represent twenty thousand nautical miles. Would you get that many? I suppose, I suppose it doesn't make much. Of just difference. two. Oh, sorry, you just one two. Yeah, each one could represent twenty k. Yeah, yeah. Okay, they're um, gonna do like eight. Oh god. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's move it back. Let's mm-hmm. Move it back towards. Mm-hmm. You were on the ship, you were sailing, you were working, you were probably getting very tired. Yes. You eventually made it back. I was coming back. Quiet. Quiet. Very quiet here. Now, I should probably say, you're not coming back to what would be described as like a busy capital city. No, you're, I'm, you're, I'm, you're, you're I'm coming in the back. Nowhere in Tipperary. Yeah. yeah, you're coming back to Thurlis. And even at that, you're coming back to your homestead in Thurlis, which is outside. Outside of Thurlis, yeah. Yeah. So how has that been? Quiet. <laughs> is yeah, that? Yeah, it's it's like uh, I love it. You know, I like, and I've been traveling now for almost eight years. Um, yeah. Because I left first time. Like I traveled before that, but on my own, I left first time, February twenty second, twenty eleven. Yeah. So next year will be my. Eighth year of traveling solid. Wow. And um, so I come home to it all the time. And I love it. But at the same time, from ship life, it is so quiet. It is just so... I love how slow life is here. But is that not something that you would want after being so hectic for six months? Eight months? Ten months. Sorry, ten months. Ten months, 300 days, no day off. Yeah. Non-stop. Okay, so 300 solid days. It is what exactly what you want, 100%. It's all I want to do is just chill out, watch YouTube, just Throw eat your food, phone in a lake. make lots of really good tea. Um, although, I have to say, obviously, in China, they have great tea. Like, it's China. Um, but like, just be able to just sit down, make a cup of tea, veg out in front of the fireplace, watch television. Well, I don't watch TV, but, you know, internet. But it gets old fast, and you suddenly start looking for work again. I don't want to work in Ireland because not right now. Um, so it gets old and then you start to think, you know, back on the ship, I didn't have to cook. 
I didn't have to pay for this. I didn't have to pay for that. I didn't have to pay for anything, you know. And then I'd be doing shows, and I get back to the you know mixing again, and I get back to the old gang again. Because even though the company employs seventy five thousand people, you end up meeting the same people again and again. Because our department in entertainment is obviously not that big. Yeah. So in entertainment, you end up seeing some familiar faces around and around. Um, you start to miss it because it, ship life gets into your skin. It gets into your bones. You know, like I haven't had to pay taxes in in eight years. You know, I haven't had to pay rent in eight years. I haven't had to do any of that stuff for so long now. That um, well, some of it was backpacking as well, so it's a bit different. But at the same time, all the taxes and pension I ever paid in Australia, I got back in one lump sum. So that was great. Yeah. <laughs> but anyone who's done Australia will know that and um, the yeah the thing is like you come home and it's fine but unless you plan on starting a new life back at home you immediately start to miss ships again which yeah. is stupid because all you can think about on the ship is going home and all you can think about is home is going to the ship I do, I do get it though. It's, it's like whenever I've gotten crazy busy with work, all I want to do is have time off. But yeah. then the second I have time off, I miss that switched on feeling. But that adrenaline buzz, that, yeah. that rush, and especially when like you've got that small lull between jobs where it goes well. And you're like, yeah, okay, it was stressful, it was tiring, it was like a headache, but it worked and it's good and it's done. Yeah, it's amazing. It really is. Yeah. I had a like. There's a good friend of mine who. Absolutely gets addicted. I, I, he must be addicted to the buzz of live sound, and he's he's absolutely he cannot understand why I don't seem to get as much of a thrill out of the buzz of doing a live show because to him everything goes wrong, but then by the end of the night everything's worked out. I love that. Yeah, and yeah. that 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 is what the buzz comes from. Yeah, I, I don't yeah. care what anyone else says. That's where the buzz comes from. If everything went swimmingly and was perfect, and everything went to plan, there wouldn't be a buzz. Yeah, if if, if it's a pedestrian show where everything is just fine, and the singers are just meh, mm-hmm. and the band is just you know phoning it in, yeah, then I'll go up for a cigarette in the smoking area and I'll have a can of coke and just kind of go to the guys like of all the shows I've ever done, that was one of them. Yeah. You know, it's just like there is nothing remarkable about that show. But I have other shows where like the wireless MIDI drum jacket fails. And so all of my performers on stage are wearing in-ear monitors. So I will use the talkback. I've got three talkback channels on the console. One for the singers, one for the special soloists, and one for the band. So I can talk to the soloists and say, drum jacket's not working. Get off stage. Drummer solo. And so he will like he'll put on the drum jacket and he'll start hitting it but no sound will come out of it so I'll tell the drummer just make it look like it's working and so he'll go tap 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 tick tick you know and just start hitting like very gently so nobody can see him with the lights turned off he's hitting the electric drum kit while this guy on stage is going tap 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 and hitting himself and then he'll fuck off stage and he'll point to the drummer and the spotlight will come on the drummer and he'll start going on a mad solo on this electric drum kit and while he's doing a mad solo and making the whole audience clap along Maestro will be backstage with the drum jacket and I'll be on comms on one ear telling the stage staff, 
unplug all the cables, replug all the cables, give it five seconds, let the processor reboot. I'm going to reboot Logic because yeah. I have to use a Mac for this. The wireless MIDI is coming into a box which is homemade and the transmitter is homemade and by some guy, I'm guessing William Close. And that goes into a small interface which has a MIDI in and the MIDI in then goes into Logic and then Logic literally, when it's rolling timecode, all it's rolling is four tracks which have mutes. So it's just muting the live MIDI instrument. Okay. So it's mute on, mute off. That's all the track is doing when it's rolling. So sometimes you get a sync issue or you get a delay. So he goes tap, boom, tap, boom. So you get a really terrible delay of like one second on the yeah. MIDI. So you have to reboot everything. Now you can't reboot the computer. That's way too slow. But just closing Logic and reopening it and powering and powering, powering on and off the jacket usually does it. Yeah. But problems like that Violin dress is the same thing. The violin dress works in the same way. Just instead of being a piezo transducer, it is a guitar pickup. And so the string stretched over the guitar pickup, doesn't matter what they're tuned in, because he pulls a bow across it, the pickup registers a voltage, sends that into the brain, that's a MIDI note. Yeah. you know. And so as I always told people, the violin dress works in the same way. You could spit on the violin dress and it would still make this sound, uh, which we've tested, it works. Um, <laughs> um but yeah, stuff like that. When when instruments go wrong, when in-ears fail, when microphones are a problem, like we have six tracks recorded for every single instrument, track, performer, and singer. And um, anytime something goes wrong, it's all about reaction times. So if the grand piano is coming up on the stage lifts from underneath and it's being lifted on stage, if the stage staff for some reason don't turn on the wireless microphones or if they forget or if they're not working you need to have your finger on the button to fire the sick track for that piano before he plays the first note of Moonlight Sonata. So yeah. it's like knowing the show, knowing the timing, knowing where your radio receivers are and which of the 40-something receivers is the piano and go, okay, that one. <laughs> you know, um, But those kind of chaos problems, I love them. You know, Because those are the shows where the, you know, the other team goes like, oh, the sound engineer actually does something. <laughs> no, but th th this is exactly what I'm talking about. This is the chaos that you're you're explaining yeah. is what people get the buzz. The, the, the guys who get a buzz out of doing live sound love when things go wrong. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They'll never admit it, but that is exactly the time that they go, great, this is great. I now have to problem solve in hyper speed. I mean, I have to, I have to really come up with workarounds for everything. Yeah, and that's my, not working. How do I fix it? And my I can't fix ship, it. What do I do to replace it? Exactly. Like my manager on the ship was an absolute legend. Um, he's toured with Stageco and some of the biggest things. He's done the U two tours and Dire Straits tours and all this stuff. He once knocked Mark Knopfler into a microphone stand and chipped his tooth because they were moving so a set piece in behind him and he bumped him with his arse and then like knocked him forward into the mic and chipped his tooth. Um, and he still had a job after this. Yeah, yeah. Mark Knopfler just said, "Oh, I guess I was uh, in the wrong place." And I can just kept playing, um, like not severely knocked a tooth out, but just like a tiny little sliver. Um, <laughs> but Luis, anyway, he's been around. He's done it all. And so when he would come on comms and he'd say something smartass like, "Oh, I guess the drum jacket works today," I'm going, "No, that's actually a sick track." He was like, "Ah, shit, I didn't even realize." <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> if you can get the 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 fix done so fast that no one even knows that you fixed it. Yeah. It's like I've had singers who they have a broken microphone and I hear a tiny little in the cable and I immediately go, sick track, and replace them. And they're then belting and singing their hearts out on stage. 
and then they go off stage and I'll just pick up my microphone and I can, I can talk to each singer individually and so I'll say stop singing your microphone's broken it was like I can hear them talking like through their broken mic going like crackle crack, crackle but oh man I was breaking my balls singing out there <laughs> it was yeah. like don't worry your mic's fucked take tracks on now <laughs> yeah no it's, it's crazy and it's 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 absolutely a lot to do with that line of work both in live and in the studio mm-hmm because you do, you think on your feet, you get better at it. Because when you when you keep having to problem solve every single time you work a job, you yeah. get really good at it. That's why we always say people should work, start the job on cheap shitty gear. Yeah. You know, because your cheap shitty gear is not going to work right and it's going to give you problems, it's going to give you headaches and you're going to troubleshoot, troubleshoot, troubleshoot. Yep. And next time a piece of gear gives you that problem, it's a five second fix. And you've learned, and you, you've developed, you've grown. But if you're working on a multi-million dollar setup that's so well built, and it was set up by professional engineers, it's probably not going to have a problem for a very long time. Yeah. And you're going to breeze through like everything so easy. You will go soft mm-hmm. over that time. Yeah, and then you have a real problem, and what do you do? Yeah. No, I completely agree. I absolutely completely agree. It's a funny thing, and it's, it's the only line of work that I've seen that in, is anything to do with media-based where it's sound or picture. Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you always have issues. Oh, yeah. I, I, I've never been working any job where there wasn't an issue in that kind of line of work. Ever. That's it. You know, I say with lighting as well. If you're doing lighting with a bunch of park hands and you have to design this incredibly complicated show, you have to think about every single light you're going to hang. What color are you going to make it? Where is it going to point? But then yeah. you get some people who only ever learned on moving lights, and they've got a full Martin rig of Mac 700s, and they can make it any color, they can point it anywhere they want it. And yeah. then they come to a power rig, and they're like, well, what do we do with this? Well, you get a ladder, <laughs> and you point that light there. It's like, you know, they've never had to deal with the old school way of doing things. Yeah, and there's a lot to be said for it, because yeah. it's, it's not even just that you learn to problem solve, it's that you also learn you are fallible, your job is fallible, and you're going to face the brunt of whatever goes wrong. Yeah, yeah. Because, wait till you have an angry client. Yeah, yeah. That's that's one of the reasons I I mostly turn down live work. Okay, so Frank, after all of these journeys, and you have traveled, as we've discussed, 40,000 nautical miles. And more by air. Plus more by air. You mentioned that it's quiet when you get home, and you're not a huge fan of that, having to switch off entirely. What would it take for you to come home, be happy, and settle back into Ireland? Or is it just a complete write-off? You are now a traveling man. No, I want to come home. I want to come home, but I have lived a lot of very strange lives. I have done the ship thing. I've done the backpacking thing. I've lived in a shipping container in the middle of a rainforest. I've lived on in a tent on islands in the Indian Ocean. I've 
lived as a caretaker in backpackers hostels where I just do housekeeping and I keep my rent that way, you know, and I found different ways to live and I found different ways to survive and find audio jobs and work in the business and blah, blah, blah. So the thing that makes me hesitant to come back to Ireland is the fact that to do any of those things that made it livable in previous lives, in Ireland, it's just not livable right now. It's so expensive. I've got to pay so much tax on such a small wage. And and what do I do? You know, like the work is not, there is work up to the standard of what I want to do. I'm not saying that I should only have this job, but I'm saying if I want to come back and I say like, okay, I'd like to work here, but the really high standard work in Ireland, in entertainment, in audio, is usually done by external companies, usually external British or European companies who come in with the big stuff, the big boys. So in order to work in the big Irish shows, you need to live in Germany. <laughs> you know, So it's like, I would love to stay in Ireland, have a dog, have a house, just chill out, be able to live a normal life, if I could afford it. And if I could make it financially viable to just live the good life that I thought I was going to get in 2011 before I left. You know, before I started any of this, I thought like, I'll do a few years of travel, blah, 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 and then I'll come back. The recession will be over. Things will be better. I'll start a job. Things will be fine. Yeah. 2018 now, and it just looks harder. It looks like rent is increasing. I left in 2011, and rent has increased 85% since I left. Yeah. That's a nationwide average. And depending oh, on where you go, it peaks more and more. So the wages haven't increased. The standard of work hasn't increased. And the bigger and bigger the shows get, the more and more outside help we need. So right now, yeah, I would love to be staying in Ireland. And I'd love to just be living the good life and just relaxing. And I really want a dog. I don't think I can stress how much I want a dog. <laughs> you mentioned the dog twice. I've lived and grown up around them so much that it's just it's such a strange thing for me to not have one. And... To stay here with all, you know, my old family and my old friends and my old life and the old way things always used to be, everything is right except for financially, how do I make it work? Because the whole living at sea thing is a massive pain in the ass. It's a really stressful lifestyle, but I'm tax-free earning cash, which I can bring home as savings and keep, you know, but you come home to Ireland and you try and live for any extended period of time and suddenly the money evaporates. And you have to go again, off to another ship. Yeah. So to stay, it just needs to become more reasonable. It just needs to become more livable. Mm. You know, and I could stay in Tipperary, but there's a very limited selection for work. I could stay in Dublin, where there's a slightly larger selection of work, but the rent is obscene. Yeah. So that's, it's it's a cash 22. Yeah. You know? And you know as well, I mean, you're you're technically self-employed, really. I mean, you, you you work contracts, but your yeah, contracts freelance, aren't you know, exactly, contract to contract. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're you're not fixed by any means. Mm -hmm. If you were to try and turn around and say, "Hey, I'd love to get a mortgage," the banks would never. They would never accept your income earnings, even, I, no matter how high or how much you earn, because it's all temporary. They would say, "Well, that's temporary earnings. You want you want us to give you money for the next twenty five, thirty years? Yeah, not going to happen." Exactly. And all my previous earnings are all international, they're all external. Yeah. Um, I haven't paid taxes because I never live in the country for more than two months a year. Yeah. Um, I haven't used my credit card 
except for like emergency situations where I spend $100 and I already have a $500 overdraft, so I pay that off the next week. Yeah. So I don't have a credit score. I've never taken a loan. I don't, I don't have a credit score. If I do, I'm sure it's terrible because there was that one occasion where there was an electricity bill that went unpaid. And if that one blemish is the only situation in my entire credit history, yeah. then it's already at a negative. So, and if it's a 0.01% negative, it's still a negative. So I don't have a track record here. Yeah. So to try and get finance here, good luck. Yeah. You know, um, I want to come home. Have you been keeping up to date with news from here? Yeah, yeah. Especially when it's so controversial that it makes all the international news. You know what's yeah. bad when it's on the news in Japan? <laughs> well, yeah, I would I would I would hope that you yeah. would know to to kind of to check of what that the underwear hell is going case. On with that. that that rape case with the underwear was on news in every single country that I checked the news in. That's incredibly depressing. It was on the news in Russia. It was on the news in Japan, in China, in America, in London, it was everywhere. The whole world was going, What? Yeah, that, that was the case with the barrister who said she held him up. Saying look she was at look at what it. she was wearing, yeah. basically the whole uh, the whole movement now of this is not consent, which it is not. It is not consent. Like, yeah. I can't believe that this barrister thought that was a thing she could do and got away with it because Ireland. I, is she still working as a barrister? I'm not oh, right. I'm, I'm sure she's sure. doing fine. I'm sure she's doing just fine. Uh, that's that, that's one of those kind of everybody. Found yeah. that disgusting. Yeah, I, 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 I don't think anybody could defend the fact that somebody would say something like that in a court. Yeah, yeah, and that's the thing that when you said, like, "Am I keeping up with the news?" Like, usually, the, let's say the last three major occasions where Ireland has made international news was gay marriage is legal, good; abortion is legal, positive; and then the underwear case. I was like, "Ah, lads, come on!" And they were the three big news stories that you heard in the well, last. While I've been away. You know, I'm sure there's been others that have gone under the radar. I'm not on the news every day, but it's like usually whenever Ireland makes the news for the past two years, it was pretty positive. It was like, look at these forward, progressive, <laughs> you know, uh, liberal European, you know, modern thinking country. And then the next one, it's like, ah, come on, really? So I would move back to Ireland if they got their shit together and if they made it a livable country. Because right now it's looking like I realistically, if I had to settle down somewhere tomorrow, I would probably go for Croatia or Romania or Poland. Poland is on fire right now. Okay. Um, <laughs> on that note, I will say thank you very much, Frank, for being on the podcast. No worries. For being in the Lebo Lounge. Pleasure. And that is the end of this episode. So... Thank you, Frank. We're going to have some drinks. We're going to have some laughs. We're going to have some silliness. And we will talk to you again soon. <laughs>